The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. The art of peace begins with you. Work on yourself and your appointed task in the art of peace. Everyone has a spirit that can be refined, a body that can be trained in some manner, a suitable path to follow. You exist for no other purpose than to realize your inner divinity and manifest your inner enlightenment. There is no other purpose. Foster peace in your own life and then apply what you have learned to all that you encounter. Sometimes things really do not work out very well. This is true both in life and even when we live a spiritual life. You come to a Zen meditation in desperate need of a calming, restorative experience. And after working all day with a racing mind, looking forward to doing some quiet meditation, only to have your lower back hurt moments after sitting down. All your hopes about what meditation will do for you, but, in turns, but it turns out your physical limitations are more intractable than you thought. Your commitment to coming regularly and to establish a home practice hasn't materialized or you keep finding less and less time to meditate. Life is even worse. You finally get what you want in your career or in a relationship or a lifestyle, but there are still all these problems that you had assumed would go away if only this or that happened. Or you gradually realize that the thing you always wanted is never going to happen. Finding creative expression, getting economic freedom, having a friend, a partner, or a spouse who treats you just the way you want them to. It's not that there aren't lots of good times, too. It's just that the disappointments often loom so large. In becoming an adult, you learned somewhat how to cope with disappointment, or else you wouldn't be able to function at all. Yet the conundrum remains. If you learned to live with disappointments, then why are you so disappointed? And your disappointment is so difficult to cope with. Why do you get sad, depressed, worried, irritated, moody, anxious, grumpy, lethargic, or non-responsive? Not just every once in a while, but many times in the course of a day or a week sometimes in small ways, sometimes in big. Sound like anyone you know? (laughs) So good evening. Tonight is part two of When Life Disappoints You. First noble truth, life is and will be disappointing. Second noble truth, there is a cause for that disappointment, but it's not what you think it is. Third noble truth, there is a solution 
for handling disappointment, but not what you think it is. And fourth is what we're here tonight to discover. What to do, how to manage, through the inevitable fact of life. There will be disappointments. There will be suffering. And yet, the Buddha Dharma teaches us that despite that fact of life, the fact that life is suffering, life is disappointing, there is no reason to be disappointed, which often seems to be our initial reaction to the disappointments of life, the more subtle and the more profound. Tonight we're going to go through some processes later this evening that will help you to see much of what we will talk about at first. To help you to see that, for example, the mind in its state of ignorance, in those moments of pain or suffering, has a designed reaction. It is important that we begin to understand that without a clear understanding of how the mind is operating from moment to moment, the suffering that often seems to rise in us from disappointments compounds because we do not understand what is really going on. For example, I say to you, you are not your disappointments. You are not your reactions to your disappointments. And last but not least, you are not the one disappointed. When we understand how the mind is operating from moment to moment, and this understanding, though we may talk about it tonight, only manifests, becomes real for us when we see it experientially for ourselves. And so this is where the devoted practice of meditation is central to all Zen spirituality, or what I prefer to call authentic spirituality. In meditation, we inquire into the nature of mind and how it is operating. And when you inquire into mind's reaction to disappointment, the first thing you notice is that it has a designed reaction. It is functioning from an exclusive place of survival. And because of that designed reaction, and again, it is important that you understand that the operative word here is designed reaction. Mind is designed for survival. Therefore, because of its perception of disappointments, and we can see what that perception is when we observe and experience its initial reaction. Its initial reaction is always the same. When disappointed, and you need to see this for yourself and not just hear it from me, mind always goes to the lowest denominator. It experiences the disappointment as a threat to the being and immediately reacts to the disappointment in a singular manner, in a story about what happened. These components I want you to collect tonight as we work through them experientially with meditation later on this evening. So the first thing, when we take a look at the anatomy of disappointment, or the various parts of a disappointment, is that mind experiences disappointment 
mind experiences it as a threat to the being. Therefore, its initial reaction is the designed reaction of survival of the being. Survival of the being. And in that designed reaction, it responds to the disappointment by initially creating a story about the disappointment. And if you've heard me teach on numerous occasions, one of the problems in living life skillfully, effectively, and with a sense of thriving and not just surviving, is most of us do not know the difference between life as the story we call my life and life in its fullness, in its reality. And what mind does in the moment of disappointment is that it presents, it presents this story about what happens. And when we examine the nature of the story, the story is always negative. The story is always negative. And the being always perceives the disappointment as a threat to them. Perhaps subtly or profound, the nature or the narrative of the story is always the same. And that is, something's wrong with my life. Something's wrong with this relationship. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with her or him. Something's wrong with me. Something is wrong. Mind always perceives disappointments as, again, a threat to the being. Therefore, the narrative of the story is always the same. Something is wrong. The story I call my life is not real. It is always a fabrication of what really happened. Aldous <coughs> Huxley once wrote, experience, meaning the stuff we talk about when we talk about how our day was, he said experience is never what happened to us. It's what we did with what happened to us. And whenever the being experiences any kind of disappointments, the mind initially and immediately creates a narrative about the disappointment. And the narrative always takes the position of the lowest denominator. There is a threat here, something is wrong, something is to be lost, and immediately our reaction is to take on a defensive mode or a survival mode. That survival mode being one of three positions, fight, flight, or to be paralyzed by the disappointment. Most people find themselves you know, in the paralyzed position in that whether they're fighting or fleeing, they still see the disappointment as an opposition to their life at that moment, as something that now has limited them. And that narrative is being shaped and formed exclusively. Remember I said a moment ago, life will disappoint you. So just as you've heard me talk about the first noble truth in its initial translation, life is suffering, you've heard me say that I have <coughs> always imagined the Buddha to say it this way. When he first uttered those words, he looked out at a thousand people and said, life is suffering, get over it. Life will disappoint you. Get over it. It will happen. And the way to get over it 
the way to get over it is to understand what really just happened in that moment of our disappointment. Certainly, we are not talking about a denial of certain facts surrounding the narrative or in the narrative. Certainly, people will say things, people will do things, life will suddenly show up with circumstances and situations out of nowhere that tend to thwart or, <coughs> again, disappoint us. But our suffering, which is what we're talking about when we talk about my disappointment, our suffering is always about something other than the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Our suffering is a function of our expectation of the moment. All disappointments and their ability to cause suffering for us in that moment are a function of an unfulfilled expectation. We have an expectation of life to treat us this way. We have an expectation of God to answer our prayers, to save us from trouble and problems. We have an expectation of the teacher to be a certain way. We have an expectation of our spouse or partner to always be a certain way. Whatever our expectation is in that moment, the narrative of the story that is generating the experience of the suffering is always the same. And that narrative and our attachment to that expectation, our attachment to that expectation is the root cause of our suffering, is why we can't get over it. To get over it is to literally detach or let go of the expectation, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. The first rule in practicing Zen spirituality, or any authentic spirituality, is stop trying to get something out of Zen. Just do the practice. Just meditate. There is a sign on the portal above the gate to hell in Dante's Divine Comedy. It reads, Abandon all hope, you who enter here. Hope can often, often prove to be an hallucinogenic, disguised refusal to be disguised refusal to be with things just as they are in the moment. In the moment of our disappointment, the suffering is a function of, again, of our refusal to experience the disappointment, to experience what really happened, and to be with it as it is and is not. So the message over you know, the, the gateway to hell in Dante's Divine Comedy is to abandon all expectations. If you expect to get through this, we call life, abandon all expectations. Now, some people hear that as absolute, and this is what I mean by that. This does not mean we don't have goals, we don't have dreams, we don't have hopes, but our attachments to them must loosen up, must loosen up, because inevitably, somewhere in your life, if not now, later, if not later, before you hit the grave, and at least by the time it comes for you to hit the grave, there will be disappointment. The suffering we experience from the disappointment, again, is in direct correlation to the grip we hold 
onto our attachment to the expectation. When you reject the moment that is arising just because it is unpleasant, you are rejecting the only moment you have in which to be alive, the only moment in which you can feel and act. If you are lost in disappointment about the future or the past, you are not fully or authentically present in the moment. So when we find ourselves caught up in the story about our disappointment, we find ourselves in a part of the story of our life that is always in the past. We find ourselves stuck in the past, the moment we attach to the story. So we are disappointed. The mind's initial reaction is to go to a place of judgment or criticism, negative point of view of what just happened, and it sustains what it believes to be a way to survive the disappointment by replaying a narrative that is always about what happened. And when we are stuck in the part of our life which is about what happened, we find ourselves stuck in the past. And when we are stuck in the past, life has moved on. And where life is really happening is never in the past or the future. Life is only happening at all times in the moment. Our healing from the disappointment does not come from having life correct itself, having the person correct themselves and get with our program or agenda, but from learning how to stay present in the moment and not get caught in the story that is always focused on the past, on what happened. Again, when you take the time to truly do Zen meditation, when you commit yourself to the real practice of meditation, which is not this stuff you often heard, hear me talk about, that's about supplementing a day of lying and pilfering, as the ancients said, a day of lying and pilfering meditation will not cure. And they meant for us to understand that it is not meant to be, again, some kind of fix for our life, some kind of salve for our wounds, but it is a powerful, inquiry, a powerful tool for inquiry, where we get to really study mind, study self, in a way that we can see what it's up to. When we go through life seeing what it's up to, our disappointments about life, when we are operating from a place of understanding or enlightenment, that is, a real awareness a mindful awareness, as you hear it often advertised out there, of what is really going on in the moment, then we have power. Ignorance, as the Buddha says in the Second Noble Truth, the cause of suffering, applies here as well. When we are ignorant of what is really going on in our own suffering body, then very little potential, very little possibility. Awareness of what is really going on in the moment of our disappointment is the solution to, again, solving, healing, and moving on with our disappointment. Buddhism teaches that we experience everything in terms of what it calls the eight worldly concerns. So at all times, whether you know it or not, what I call the context 
the context of our thinkingness always falls into what Buddhist, Buddhism calls the eight worldly concerns. When we do the work of meditation again, where we step out of coming and going, doing and having, into the role of observer, into the role of inquirer, we begin to see this, that we are always thinking about one of the following, gain or loss. We are always thinking from a place of gain or loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, happiness and unhappiness. When you take a look at the context of our thinkingness, that is, the content of our thoughts, the context for that, that is, the space that allows those thoughts to rise, allows that story to, again, generate and repeat itself over and over again, is that we always are thinking from a place of gain or loss. For example, we meditate, perhaps, because we believe we will gain something from meditation. We don't meditate, perhaps, because we believe there is nothing to gain and we might lose time for other things to do to meditate. We are always attaching this kind of value to things in life. And that approach, that point of view, is that expectation being shaped and formed into a solid form for us, in us. So that, again, when, quote, <coughs> we find ourselves disappointed by either a person's actions or a particular circumstance or situation occurring in our life, that point of view is generated from this mental attitude, this mental approach to life, usually unconscious for us until someone comes along and says, this is what you're doing. You're always looking at life and what's going on in your life from a place of, do I, well, can I gain anything from this or will I lose anything from this? Or we are always praising life. When you listen to people's conversations, as I have listened to them over the past 40 years, they fall into one or two categories. They're happy about life and life is great. They're, they're not happy about life and life sucks. You see? There's no in-between. They come to me and they say, I'm happy. Or they come to me and they say, I'm not happy. You see? There's no middle place there. So <clears throat> when you understand that ego, and that's the part of our consciousness we are talking about tonight, ego is always operating from these extremes. We are either praising ourselves and others or life in general, or we are blaming ourselves and others or life in general. The, you know, one of the you know, cultural you know, questions that everybody always asks is, you know, how's life treating you? And my response often to that is, Find me life first. You know, see, we tend to think of life again as treating us either from a good place or a bad place. This, again, what Zen refers to as dualistic mind, this duality of life. People are always talking about life again in the same way. They're either talking about it as a pleasure, today I had a great day and I'm happy and it feels great, or they're talking about it from a place of pain. Today was a terrible day, and I've been mad all day, and if you keep reminding me tonight about it in this talk, I'm going to be mad at you, you see, and so forth. There's no middle for most of us. And again, as I said a moment ago, 
we're either happy or we're not happy. We're either happy or we're not happy. We're either happy or we're not happy. There is no middle place. Authentic spirituality is about challenging those positions, those absolute corners. And often Buddhism, or the Buddha Dharma, is referred to as the middle way. There is another alternative except for gain or loss. There is a middle position. And in that middle position, we say in Zen, there I learn to be content, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. When life is really challenging us and we are disappointed by the circumstances or situation, we don't need to go to either corner. There is a middle position we can learn to take, but we can only learn to take that position when we train ourselves first to identify it and then to maintain it within ourselves. We identify that position only one way. We can only come to know that position experientially. And this is why, again, I talk about the quintessential practice of regular exposure to meditation. In meditation, we get to experience, if not initially, eventually, that middle position, that place of contentment. And the more and more we expose ourselves to that, the more and more we expose ourselves to that experience, the more and more we expose ourselves to that experience, mind takes this kind of photograph of it. And so in mindfulness training, for example, when we are training to be more aware and mindful, again, part of the training involves that experience, cultivating the ground for regularly experiencing that middle position so that we become intimately familiar with it and aware of it. So that in the course of the day, when we're driving our car, when we're at work, when whatever it is we are doing otherwise, other than sitting on the cushion, we can immediately access that refuge, as the Buddha called it, that place of refuge in those moments of disappointment. Why? Why do we want to be able to do that? Because it is in that place when the mind has been settled down or disarmed of its designed reaction, we can see clearly. One of the other, again, uh, effects of that initial reaction, and we all know this, is that in those moments of disappointment, especially those profound disappointments, when someone has hurt us, someone has done something that breaks our heart or what have you, we become, our, our whole view of everything becomes clouded by that experience. In order to respond to that disappointment, in order to move on from that disappointment, we need to be able to get to a place where we can settle down, where again the clouds dissipate, everything becomes clearer for us, then we can see clearly now since the rain is gone. <laughs> Any questions?
So our culture has conditioned us in this way. We, of course, want gain. We, of course, find often unreasonable, illogical to pursue anything that we do not pursue as a means towards gain. It is a cultural conditioning to want gain, to want praise, to want approval, to want pleasure, to want happiness. But the Buddha referred to them as the terrible twins. The terrible twins because each always arrives with its opposite. So the problem with approaching life from this happy, sad, good, bad, right, wrong, gain, loss position is that even in those moments of pleasure, in those moments of gain, in those moments of success, what is always present with that moment is its shadow. What is always present in the good moments is bad hanging in the shadows. You can't think of good in the way that we think of it without also thinking of bad. Just like when the brain approaches a stairway, what is really going on that makes it possible for you to go up the stairs is that the brain is thinking of going down. It takes that, again, dualistic view in order to create the direction for us to be, or the ability <coughs> for us to be able to go in the direction. So what the Buddha was saying is that when we operate from a dualistic position, even in good times, there's always bad lingering in the shadows. How often have you said in good times, this is too good to be true, or this won't last? Or in good times, having a wonderful experience, a wonderful opportunity, suddenly you start to think about what's next. Or suddenly you start to think about what happened before, and so forth. The, twin, the terrible twin sisters, if you will, brothers for those of you who don't want me to be sexist and what have you, whatever, okay? The terrible twins. One cannot be open to praise and not receive blame. One cannot experience pleasure and not feel pain. This is the nature of the reality that we know. It is the denial of this truth that is the cause of all suffering. You cling to your desire for the positive in life, that expectation, while being filled with aversion to the negative events that occur. We cling to our desire for our expectation to be fulfilled. We expect that in a way as almost absolute. And when it is not fulfilled, it is again our clinging to that desire that is really the cause of our suffering over the disappointment. It's not what happened. What happened is just what happened. What happened is just what happened. Our suffering over that is again, back to Aldous Huxley's word, what we did with what happened. And what we always do with disappointments, and we do it also in the successful times when we get what we want. When we get what we want, we do the same thing. We create a story around it. See, God must love me, you see? Or, see, I must be on the right path. How many of us practice spirituality that way, you see? How many of us think that we're on the right spiritual path because things are going well? That must be why, you see? 
And the fact of the matter is that, as the ancient philosopher once said, the day of his own enlightenment, his own liberation, corresponded with the very moment that he realized the benign indifference of the universe to his stuff, you see. So how many of us talk about the universe is sending my way? I always find that to be rather haughty, you know, and so forth. It is in the denial of this truth that is the cause of our all suffering. You cling to your desire for the positive in life while being filled <coughs> with aversion to the negative events that occur. Yet despite all your efforts, you don't get many of the things you want, and they don't continue to satisfy you. Their satisfaction, if you will, is only temporary. They go away. Thus, the first noble truth, the existence of dukkha, a feeling of unsatisfactoriness that accompanies every experience in which we identify, in which we are identified with our needs. When Dante first sees the famous words above the gate to hell, he is very alarmed and asks Virgil, who is his guide through hell, what they mean? Virgil answers that they mean to abandon distrust and cowardness. It would be, a great, it would be great if life proceeded from one moment of perfect happiness to the next, but for most of us, this is not the case. So just as Dante did, we must proceed by another path, the path through our personal hell, <coughs> where we encounter moments of pain and feelings of loss and confusion. Given that this is so, you can either live in <coughs> denial of the truth of your experience or obsess on your pains and disappointments, or you can consciously accept, even embrace, not working out and trust that in doing so, you will discover real meaning in your life. What if I said to you, and I have said this over and over again, but you know, it's not a given that everyone hears it. What if I said to you that it is the challenging moments, the disappointing moments, that is directing us in life to the real meaning of our lives, you see? And that what really matters in those moments is not whether or not we get what we want, but how we conduct ourselves despite whatever happens. You know, if we get what we want, do we again go to such an extreme, extreme to create a narrative around that success that also clouds our vision to see the real meaning and purpose of life? Or the opposite side, when we are disappointed, do we go to a place, does the narrative cloud us from seeing that despite, and you need to hear this, that despite however tragic the disappointment may be, there is a reality, all will be well. All will be well. As the philosopher said, on the day of my enlightenment, my own liberation, I realized the benign indifference of the universe to my stuff. What he was saying to us was what the Buddha Dharma points to. There is something much bigger going on here than whether you get what you want or not. Hook into that and watch things change. 
ultimately authentic spirituality, any genuine spiritual practice, any religious spiritual practice, all of the ancient teachings across the board, because the Dharma is seamless and timeless, all of them have said the same thing. There is something larger going on here than our stuff. And our suffering over our stuff has nothing to do with the ultimate plan. And the ultimate plan is what goes on after you have gotten so stressed out, so anxious over your disappointment that you have a heart attack and you die. Disappointment has a chimerical quality because our minds refuse to accept what is. Therefore, we relive the disappointment over and over again, never noticing after the initial experience that it is only a memory we are re-experiencing, much like watching old movie reruns. So <clears throat> how many of us are still disappointed about something that happened to us a few years ago, a few days ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? How many of us are still hearing that same narrative, that same story? Perhaps today, when something else disappoints us, that old story resurfaces again, you say. And again, the mind, ego, does not distinguish between the moment and the past. So in that moment, when we are experiencing all those emotions that initially rose from that moment of that experience or that circumstance or that person disappointing us, in the moment when we are re-experiencing that, what we are being told here is that what is really just going on is the brain is playing a memory of the past. But how many of us live in that experience of the past as if it's still happening to us now? Spirituality or meditation or the training in Zen is learning how to detach from those experiences that have become cellular for us, that again are surfacing really just as a memory, but we are experiencing now as if it's going on for us at this moment. Learning to detach from that mechanical event, and that is what it is, mechanical. Learning to detach from that mechanical event and reinsert ourselves back into the moment is the means by which we can move on from our disappointments every time they show up for, for us. Any questions? Denise? Especially may I ask a question? Um, we talked about detachment tonight, and you know, I believe that's a really important thing that I've learned from meditation. I'm trying to get better with my meditation, and it has, I can see that it's helping, and I'm approaching it from a point of I'm gaining something, and I realize that. But I am learning how to be more patient and detached. But is there a, a line you cross from detachment to apathy? Detachment to apathy. Both attachment and apathy have its same source. And its same source, again, is what I want to say to you is what you said prior to that. Instead of learning to be patient, practice without expectation. The quickest way to resolve patience in your life is to have no expectations of the moment. Whatever is present in the moment is complete is complete. 
So if you want to avoid apathy, okay, apathy is again a ch the child of expectation, okay, all right, of expectation. So the practice is that middle position is whether we go this way or that way, we're still on the, the same path. Whether life goes south, whether we get what we want or we are disappointed, all is well. We're still on the same path. You know, as you often heard me use the example before about lining up good people and bad people. If we lined up all the people on this side of the zendo that keep getting what they always want, and we lined up all the people on this side of the zendo who keep not getting what they always want, every, both groups have the same thing in common. The ones who get all they want in their lifetimes and the one who doesn't get all they want in their lifetime both end up in the cemetery. The benign indifference of the universe to what I want or what I don't like. That's where the real power of detachment comes from. Seeing that this narrative, that this mundane stuff going on down here has meaning and purpose, that's where the suffering lies. Detaching from that narrative. We haven't a clue what's next. And there's something inside me that tells me when we take a look at the state of the world now, thank God. Okay? Because we would screw that up too. Okay? So, if you want to avoid apathy, crossing that line, give up expectation. If you want to resolve patience, give up your expectation. Just keep training. Just keep practicing. Okay? And whatever shows up in that moment, take that. Whatever that is, you've heard me say, follow instructions and take what you get. That's the practice. Take what you get, whatever that is. And when it is difficult to take what you get, take that. See, we need to stay away from the notion that training is about blaming ourselves when we fail at this. No, when we fail at this, take that. Whatever happens, take that. Take what you get, whatever that may be. All of it. Experience it fully, sit with it, get to know it intimately. And when you can sit with the devil and not be frightened by the devil, the devil loses his power. You see? And when you can sit with angels and not want to fly, you know why human beings are so close to God. Okay? <clears throat> you had a question? What makes some people okay with the uh, fluctuation of expectation of disappointment and um, I guess gratification and other people to seek evenness instead? Can't tell you. I have no idea. I know what, it, what makes it for me, okay? And again, back to something Denise you know, when Denise talks about, you know, it could be apathy, you know. It could be apathy that some people deal with disappointment better than others. You know, some people say, well, you know, the world is messed up anyway. They say, why should I expect anything? could be that. But the real question you need to be asking yourself is, what makes that for you? Okay? And again, in Zen, there's one answer to that question. What makes it work is practice. 
engaged in the practice of this seated meditation. When you experience that place of refuge and you come to know it intimately, you become it. When you become it, nothing rocks you. Okay? Even when you're rocking. Okay? Thank you. What's your name? Brian. Hi. Brian? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Hi, kid. Hi, uh, if, a, if a person believes in God and um, certainly not in a benign indifference of the universe, but a God who directs them and so forth. Uh, they, get, they get stuck in all of that then. If, if that's their belief system, they get stuck in unhappiness or they just go back and forth and they yeah. don't settle into it. And that takes away their responsibility too. Then, to yeah, and again, you know, I would say that that, that individual uh, is, again, unable to see the difference between the story they have about God mm-hmm. and, again, the experience, okay? okay? And the, the experience is everywhere, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so, again, it's, it's a willingness to step out of the story. And this is what I believe is the true meaning of faith. The true meaning of faith is if you really have all that faith, then step into the fire, mm-hmm. okay? It's a wonderful story, a friend of mine who was a, a diocesan priest in Philadelphia for many years, and um, we were talking about the same, similar discussion one night over a bottle of gin, you know. <laughs> and he tells this story about uh, one day, uh, one of his parishioners called him, and she was concerned because her husband didn't believe in God, didn't believe in, you know, Christ didn't believe in, you know, the changing of the bread and wine. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he agreed to meet him in the rectory. And as they were going to uh, his office in the rectory, they had to go through the sanctuary uh, where the tabernacle was, where the, you know, the body and blood of Christ was kept. And the priest knelt, you know, as you know, and, and mm-hmm. then proceeded on. When they got into his office, the guy asked him why he did that. And he said, well, we believe that Jesus is there. And the guy said to him, if I believed that Jesus was there, I'd be on my face. You see? Mm-hmm. see? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Any other questions? Question may I speak? We we were talking earlier about our culture and some of the challenges. And I was actually thinking, as you were saying, this that sporting events, amateur at least, I've found are like could be, with right view, might be good training because you compete hard, you care about the outcome while you're in it, but then after the after the game or whatever, you shake hands and you move on. Yeah. And you don't sit there and wallow in your disappointment about the yeah. game. I mean, yeah. you can be disappointed a little bit, but yeah. you move on. Yeah, and that is the fundamental ground for authentic spiritual practice. You give your all without being attached to the results. Okay? You practice as if you are enlightened without being attached to the results. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's, that's the whole narrative of a good sportsman, isn't it? Yes. You know, at the end you shake hands and congratulate the winner. Detached from the results. And that's our problem. We, <coughs> you hear me talk about it this way. Transformation, which is another word for enlightenment, is that moment when the individual's consciousness for whatever reason, 
shifts from being focused on the content of their life to being focused on the context of their life. By the content, we mean the results in life, the things going on, the circumstances and situations. And so the way most of us live our life is that we are obsessed with the content. We are obsessed with what's happening. And we put all kinds of energy in trying to manipulate the content to give us something it is never going to give us, you see. Even when we have a moment of gratification, that gratification is only temporary. Enlightenment is when the being shifts from being focused on the content of their life as the source of their happiness and well-being to the context of their life as the cause. It's a shift from you know, <coughs> effect to cause. To the cause, again, Zen spirituality has as its ground this understanding of the cause. And Buddha said 2,700 years ago, <coughs> if you never get to the root cause of your suffering, all you're doing is trimming the tree while the root of the tree is rotting. You know, that's all that's going on. And that wonderful, and the wonderful Japanese symbol of that is those little bonsai trees. And I can remember many, many years ago going out and buying one of them and you know, bringing it into my house and trying to keep it alive, <laughs> you see. And <clears throat> finally one day someone told me up in New Hope, there's a guy up there, you should go see him. He has, I don't know if he's still there because this was many years ago, who, uh, <coughs> a little Japanese guy who sells bonsai trees and sells classes on the care of it. So I went up to f and found this guy and he was there alone one day and I had an opportunity with the uh, other guy that was with me, Ninji-san. And we went in together and he showed me that the problem is, is that, you know, the way we take care of it is that we, we trim the branches and the leaves and what have you. But the real focus on caring for a bonsai is the roots. It's about taking care of the root, you see. So most of us usually overwater it or we don't give it enough water or we don't give it that balance and what have you. So when we talk about shifting from our focus in life, from the content of life, having and doing, to being, as I said a moment ago, disappointment doesn't have its grip on us when we don't have an attachment to the outcome, mm -hmm. when we don't have an attachment to the results. You see. We work towards a goal, we work towards an expectation, but when that expectation has been unfulfilled or thwarted in any way, we shake hands and move on to the next game. Because that's all it is. Life is nothing but a series of games. You know? mm -hmm. Any other questions? So when we talk about view, as Chico brought up, right view. Right view needs to be established in our efforts to work with disappointment, to overcome our suffering over our disappointments. So first, in right view, we are not our feelings and emotions. So once again, what often gets us stuck in the event, disappointing event, is how we feel about it and our emotions surrounding it. And we focus on our feelings and emotions as if they are us. We talk about it that way. 
We say, I am so upset. I am this. I am that. We are neither our feelings or our emotions at any given time. We have feelings. We have emotions. Or more accurately, for most people, until they've done the real work, emotions and feelings have that. You see. Most of us operate living our life according to how we feel in the moment. If I feel like it, I do it. If I don't feel like it, I don't do it. You see. And again, those two extremes are causes for suffering. The middle way is, is what? What would the middle way be? Just do it. Doesn't matter how you feel. God doesn't care how you feel. The universe doesn't care how you feel. You know, it's kind of like there's a, there's a tornado coming from the backyard and you don't feel like turning off the TV because the eagles are about to make a touchdown, okay? And you expect the tornado's gonna wait. That's really what it's like, you see? Just do it. We are not our feelings or our emotions. So in those times, especially when our emotions have gripped us in a negative experience, the only way to move beyond that is to step out of our wrong view, which is we are those feelings and emotions, and act despite how, if we will, incapable we may feel in that moment. To act on it, to do what is needed. I tell my students, this is the practice. Discover what is needed and produce that. That's the practice. Whatever it is, discover what that is and produce that. That is what loving relationship is. Sustainable relationships are sustainable when both parties are focused on just discovering what is needed in the relationship and producing that. No matter how they might feel about what she just did or said, what is needed in that moment is the sustainable, to sustain the relationship. Discover what is needed to sustain the relationship and produce that. But I don't feel like that. Nobody cares. <laughs> I'm saying. Nobody cares. I mean, God asks Abraham to kill his kid. God sends his own kid. And, you know, Jesus says, yo, where are you? Get it? When we operate from that place, and here's where faith comes in and trust comes in. When we operate from those most desperate places, when we really feel we're not going to be able to take one more step, and we take that step, everything changes. Everything changes. Everything. The whole universe shifts in that moment. I often say to my students, your enlightenment, your awakening, your liberation is always right on the other side of that line you keep retreating from. Always. Right on the other side of that line you keep retreating from. Disappointments are a fact of life, not a conclusion. Life will disappoint us, and we need to remember this mantra. Everybody ready? Yeah, put your hands like this. <laughs> Here's the mantra. It don't mean nothing. <laughs> That's the mantra. See the power in that? Feel that? Did you feel that? It don't mean nothing. 
Life will disappoint us and it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Right attitude. Neither my disappointments or my successes. You need to hear this. Back to the quick solution. Neither my failures or disappointments or my successes. And this is another piece of the grip. Define me. Neither my failures or my successes define me. Neither my disappointments or my successes define me. It don't mean nothing. Even the successes. Flying high in April, shot down in May. You know? Neither my failures or my successes define me. When I step out of living my life in an effort to be defined by my successes or my failures, that is the moment I experience my own liberation and potential. Neither my disappointments or my successes define me. That's right attitude. My reactions are conditional. Every time a disappointment shows up, your reaction is a mechanical response. You, in other words, you're not doing it. You're not doing it. When you know that as a fact, and the only way you're going to get to know that as a fact is to see it for yourself through experiencing that. So in those moments when you really, really, really feel incapable, take the step to be capable. Act as if you are and watch what happens. And watch what happens. My reactions to my disappointments are conditional. Anything conditional can be reconditioned. Anything conditional can be reconditioned. Just look at them and sigh and know that they love you, they said. <laughs> Why? Because they understood that that initial reaction to when someone hurts us, to when someone offends us, that is the same reaction we probably had when we were seven. And we've just done it that way every day since. So when authentic spirituality, one of the problems again with spirituality as it is practiced in the West, has to do with the fact that we are trying to, you know, put on these clothing of enlightenment on a body that wants to stay stuck in its conditioning. We practice spirituality as a supplement to the other stuff, and it doesn't work that way. It requires a complete lifestyle change. And that lifestyle change is not some idealistic pie-in-the-sky effort. It is rooted in the fact that, again, the surest way to continue to experience suffering from my disappointments is to continue to react to them the way I always have. Because the entire universe, whether we're talking about my feelings and emotions, <coughs> my actions, or how the planets you know, do their thing up in the heavens and so forth, the earth revolves and, and all the rest, is all caused, has a particular cause that causes that effect. Cause and effect is the grease of the machine. And when we understand that my reaction in that moment, 
when I, whatever that may be, to my disappointment, is conditional, then I need to discover the conditions for reconditioning. Sadness is a natural reaction to disappointments, but grief is an unwillingness to accept what is. It's natural to be sad when things disappoint us. Grief is, well, I'm not moving. You're saying? It's an unwillingness to look again. And there's a word for that. When we, instead of getting stuck and, and, and refuse to move from what's going on, and we take the time to look at all the options, we look at what happened another, time, another way from a different point of view, there's a word for that. The word is respect. To respect yourself is to take a different view of what just happened as a means toward moving on. The word respect means second look. Specto, re, respect. To take another look. Instead of being stuck in my position about what just happened, I step back and I look at it from a different point of view as a means of moving on, as a means of moving on. There are three aspects of disappointment. If you look closely at disappointment, you will notice that it's usually composed of three aspects. The first aspect is the anticipation of disappointment. My daughter when she wants to eat, I'm always telling her, we have a limitation in the amount of sugar that you can consume in the course of the day. And so when she's getting a sense that she's near that line, she'll ask me for something to eat. And I will ask her what she wants. And she always says, either, either she hesitates, and she's like, oh, and then I push her, well, what do you want? And she always says the same thing. I'll tell you, but I know you're not going to give it to me. <laughs> She's anticipating disappointment, you're saying. And when we take a look at the three aspects of disappointment, how we hold it in our mind and our bodies, there's always that kind of subtle or profound anticipation of disappointment. Well, hopefully this will work, but there's no guarantee. So one of the aspects, or the first aspect of disappointment, is this anticipation. This happens when we imagine some situation which might happen, but hasn't yet. But we experience the disappointment as though it had already occurred. The second aspect of disappointment is that moment when the disappointment arises, and we must somehow live through it. The third is living with the after effects of lingering disappointment. So the three aspects of disappointment is, again, that kind of anticipation of it coming. Second, the actual disappointment itself. And third, what we do with it afterwards, how we live with it, how we hold it. Dealing with the first aspect of disappointment, anticipation, is actually the easiest way to be a better, if you will, spiritual being, spiritual warrior. One of my meditation teachers loves to quote Mark Twain saying, some of my biggest disappointments never happen. <laughs> this is true for everyone. When you start to worry about a possible event in the future, watch how you contract into fear. You can see that the fear has no purpose 
and it often makes that which you fear more likely to occur. Anybody here see the movie with, with Tom Hanks on uh, Gary Powers, the YouTube pilot yet? Oh, good. <laughs> so for those of you who are too young, Gary Powers was a YouTube pilot during 1960s who was shot down over the Soviet Union and captured. And uh, Tom Hanks and uh, <coughs> Steven Spielberg made this wonderful movie. It's a powerful movie. You should go see it. Wonderful. I mean, I just love Hanks. So, so Hanks plays the uh, uh, insurance attorney who the government turns to to negotiate uh, Powers return, exchange for a Russian spy they, that we just arrested and have imprisoned. And the, the guy, the actor, and I don't know who he is, but the character is the one who should get, if not the Oscar, at least Best Supporting Actor Oscar for this movie. But the Russian, the guy who plays the Russian spy, uh, Hanks goes to meet him in jail and introduces himself as his legal representative, and they start to talk about the possibilities of what's going to happen now that he's been arrested for espionage, and he says to him, you know, you could get the electric chair for this. And the Russian spy doesn't react to that. And there's about four other occasions throughout the movie where Hanks asks him this question. And the question is, you don't seem to be too worried about that. And the guy said the same, says the same thing every time Hanks asks him a similar question. He's, he says, will it help? <laughs> will it help? And we're going to come back to that a moment ago, because when I talk about the three steps to handling a disappointment the moment it occurs, one of them has to do with that question, you see? So the guy, that's his response, will it help? You know, will it help to worry? And so the initial stage of disappointment is again our anticipation of what can happen, what's going to happen to us. Again, as I said earlier, the mechanical response of ego to a disappointing event is to go to a narrative. And the narrative is always this negative view of what just happened and it is always being told to us in a threatening way. Be fearful now, your life is about to be destroyed by this disappointment, if you will. This is, the, this is true for everyone. When you start to worry about a possible event in the future, watch how you contract into fear. You can see that the fear has no purpose and it often makes that which you, you fear more likely to occur. A certain amount of anxiety in the external world is appropriate, yes. If you're not careful, you may drive off the road, or if someone is threatening you, you need to be alert. But the constant fear in your mind does not serve your survival, and it's imprisoning. It feeds on itself such that you become habituated to living in a perpetual state of disappointment just because you have fear of disappointment. A spiritual warrior will heed Dante's words and lay down the distrust of life and simply meet whatever happens with the best of intentions, determined to hold true to one's values. As I said a moment ago, whether we are talking about tonight's topic or anything else, what really matters in life is not the circumstances and situations that inevitably show up in life, including the disappointing ones. What really matters in life is how we hold everything in life. Do we approach and hold it from a dualistic place, or do we hold it in what Zen calls equanimity? Do we embrace it for what it is 
and learn how to be with it. And we're going to do a meditation uh, practice in a moment of, about that. Or do we resist it? Do we fight it? Do we worry about it? Do we run the narrative in our head over and over again? If that's how we are handling it, we need to know that that is where the suffering is happening. When I talk about this in various ways, I often say the same thing. The only time I am suffering about the things that have happened in my life is when I am telling myself the story. The suffering exists only in the story I tell myself about what happened. That's the only time. The only time. When I'm not in a story, when I'm not running it in my head and sitting with it and contemplating it and examining it, no suffering. Just what's going on in the moment. Just now. The story takes us out and it takes us out because the, the, one of the primary components of the narrative is always the same. Be afraid. Be very afraid. This is, this is the one, this event is the one that you've been worried about since second grade. <laughs> this is it. It's all over. Doesn't it happen like that? Don't you feel that way? I do. This is it. You know, remember, uh, what was the show? Uh, um, Sanford and Son? Remember, remember old, old man Sanford? Here I come! This is the one! You know? <laughs> but that's the story, isn't it? Every time disappointment comes, ego goes right to that place, the lowest denominator. This is the one. This is the one that's going to ruin it all. It's all over. Your life is finished. It's all over. The question then becomes, how do you work with major disappointment when it arises? The first thing you can do is consciously noting it. In Vipassana meditation, we practice noting the breath and sounds as they rise, which trains the mind to be able to cope under much more difficult circumstances. As they say in the military, when great pressure arises, you don't rise to the challenge you fall to your level of training. If you have not practiced staying present and withstanding the emotional pull of small disappointments, you get swept away in the emotional waves of a big disappointment and lose perspective. Thich Nhat Hanh, who I'm not always regularly quoting, uh, does say, it is not a matter of faith, it's a matter of practice. It is not a matter of faith. It's a matter of practice. If you have trained, as we are being told here, in this, then that training is where you find your salvation. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. <coughs> if you can stay present when something disappointing occurs, the next response is to open fully to the experience. When you can learn to open to the experience, the actual experience of what is going on in the moment. Stay out of the narrative, stay out of the story, and just learn to be with the experience going on in the moment. Whenever you fully experience anything, what's it, what does it do? 
Disappear. Disappears. Whatever you resist, what does it do? It persists. And eventually you become. You become it. You're no longer afraid. Now you're fear itself. And what did, uh, uh, what did Roosevelt say? We never have anything to fear but fear itself. Let's see. That is, that is where we find our defeat, our real defeat. When we cling to the fear and worryment about, this is it. <clears throat> don't deny it. Don't color code it. Don't talk about it. You know, again, what, again, some spiritualities talk about taking this terrible disappointment and wrapping a different narrative around it. So we go from this terrible disappointment to, well, this must be the universe's plan. That is the last thing you want to do. So when I go to funerals, and people come to me because they know I'm the Zen master, and they ask me the secret to the funeral, the secret to enduring this, I say the same thing all the time, and that's why I don't go to many funerals, and I'm not invited to others. <laughs> and that is, this sucks, batten down the hatches, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt for a little while, if not a long time. And that is what we need to learn to do here. When we are hurt, when we are disappointed, experience what is really going on, avoid trying to color code it or turn it into something it's not. The truth will set you free. The process will tick you off. Let's see. Another way of saying that I heard someone once say, the truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you. <laughs> but not until it's finished with you. Ah, this is a disappointment. What does it taste like? Where is it in my body? Is the feeling expanding or contracting? Open to the experience of disappointment so that you can accept it and let it pass through your mind and heart. Then you can go on with your life's journey and not be frozen in place by your pain. What the Buddha taught was to see the emptiness of the experience. Sunyata is form. Form is sunyata. Sunyata is the Pali word for emptiness. Buddhism talks about the emptiness of everything. What does it mean when we talk about the emptiness? There is no fixed position. Everything is in a state of flux. The only reason why, again, someone asked the question about this, uh, I think earlier, the only reason why the disappointing experience recurs and recurs and recurs is because the way we are managing it keeps it around. If we can open to the experience and allow it to go through our mind and body, it moves on, it disappears, it disappears. And we're going to do in a moment, the exercise to help you learn to do that. What the Buddha taught <coughs> was to see the emptiness of the experience, to see how in our pain and confusion we cling to what is not lasting. We cling to what is not permanent. This moment is not permanent. Whatever this moment is, this happy moment is not permanent. This terrible moment is not permanent. What always follows happiness is unhappiness. 
And what always follows unhappiness is happiness. Ultimately, Buddhism is learning how to wait for the next bus. That's what it is. There's another bus always coming. But remembering at the same time that all bus routes lead to the terminal. <laughs> <laughs> so it don't matter what bus you take. So what's important is to learn how to wait until the bus gets here. It will get here. And remember, it always ends up at the terminal. Gotta love it. What did Robert Frost say when he was, uh, when he gave the benediction at uh, John F. Kennedy Jr.'s uh, graduation at uh, Brown University? Uh, he got up on the stage and he said, let us bow our heads. And he said, dear Lord, forgive me for all of the little jokes I played on you. <laughs> and I will forgive you for the big one you played on that. <laughs> God bless him. God bless him. Learning to work with the lingering after effects of a big disappointment is the work of the spiritual warrior. I once heard another of my meditation teachers speaking to one of his students who had lost a loved one and was asking for help in understanding how to cope. He made, it very important. he made a very important distinction between sorrow or pain and grief or disappointment. Sorrow is a natural response to loss, he said, but grief is an unwillingness to accept it, to accept what is. I was struck by just how true this is. Lingering, disappointments come, lingering disappointment comes about because there is a tendency to transform your loss <coughs> into a story instead of accepting it as an event. This is not in itself such a problem, but there are usually two errors that arise with the story making. First is the creation of false identity, a you that is solid and never changing, that is continually reinforced by the story. Just by observing yourself closely, you can see that this isn't true and that your ego is really composed of a group of personalities which are constantly changing. The second error is that the story-making can create the illusion that your loss is a fresh event, which it is actually something that has passed. These two errors combine to lock you into a ghost-like state in which there is no freedom. The Buddha taught that you have to actively work to see through these errors and realize that there is no continuing, unchanging person and no experience that is still happening. Maybe you had a disappointment in your childhood that you've carried around for decades. Perhaps it was the way you were raised or something harmful that shaped your life. Maybe your disappointment is more recent, loss of a loved one, a failed relationship or a major disease. No matter how disappointing or horrible it was, it is over now. Like a tree that grows on the side of a mountain and is bent and shaped by heavy winds. You have been formed as you now are by this and other events of your life. Let the experience go. Allow it to have its death in the flow of time, for it is a natural part of time. Allow its death to be the fertilizer for what you cultivate in the life that it has left for you. All spiritual traditions honor the fruits that grow from conscious acceptance of great pain and disappointment. 
compassion for all suffering, patience for unskillful acts of your own or others, and most of all, loving kindness for the fragility of the mysteriousness of this which we call life. And the other thing, other thing you can remind yourself, as I said to Denise earlier, we haven't a clue of what's coming. Life is a mystery, and if you live it as such, you will find it to be this wonderful experience of discovering again and again how new every moment really is. It is in living with this conscious acceptance that the hell of disappointment is transformed into the celebration of life. There's no need for hope, for all that is, for, for all that is to be honored and cherished is here now, brilliantly reflected in the quality of your conscious, choiceless attention. Attention, attention. And ultimately the attention piece is one of the primary tools of transforming disappointment. Again, once we are disappointed, our initial reaction is to either fight or flee. Both are a kind of misdirecting our attention. We are redirecting our attention from where we need our attention. And in the end, all spiritual practices, all uh, schools of Buddhism and their various different forms of meditation find central the training of attention. Attention, attention, attention. The mind sees what it's looking for and can only can only experience one thing at a time. So most of the time we find ourselves in this suffering stage relentlessly only because that's where we keep directing our attention. We keep directing our attention to that part of the story that kind of like, you know, when I walk in the room and you tell me I'm so suffering, I'm so suffering, and I ask you what you're thinking about, and you say to me what you always say to me, well, I'm thinking about what happened again. I want to come over and slap you. <laughs> and say to you what I've said numerous times to you know, people who come in here and they're surprised by how peaceful and how quiet and how peaceful and tranquil the place is, and that is, what did you think you would find? What do you think you will find when you're constantly giving attention to the narrative that is scaring the shit out of you. You know what I'm saying? Learn to redirect your attention. If the story, <coughs> and it is, is always occupied in either the past or the future, no life there. Both the past and the future is a cemetery, is empty. Life is here and now. We train in this discipline of meditation, Zen meditation, to be in the moment and sustain being in the moment. And the, one of the primary tools for that is again, attention, attention, attention. We'll take one minute for you to stand up, shake it off, go back to your seat. And then we're gonna do this. Okay, so, there are two parts to this. 
The first is, we sit and meditate to train. Taking to the cushion or the chair, whichever <coughs> posture you do this regularly, is just like deciding to go to the gym and train your body. The cushion is where we train for this to work the rest of the time in the course of our day. This training that we will do and that you will do for the rest of your life every day informs the potential or the capacity you have to access again the means to let go and move on, let go and move on. Remember, our conditioning is to grip. This is our conditioning. From early on, we learn conditionally to contract when there has been pain, when there has been disappointment, to do this. We need to retrain to open and to let go. So in Zen meditation, or at least what we'll call for tonight regular Zen meditation, when <coughs> we take the posture and eventually get to that moment where we focused on our breath, our attention is on the breathing. In this meditation technique that I'm going to teach you tonight, our focus is on the breathing, but our primary focus is on the exhale. So we want to be aware of the inhalation, but we want to be more aware of the quality of the exhalation. So the inhalation is deliberate, for example. The inhalation is deliberate in that we are aware of beginning to take the breath and we are following it deliberately and we are imagining it moving downward into the area of our hara, which is this area of our body, if you will. The exhalation is less deliberate. The exhalation is really a release, but not a quick release, a kind of... <sighs> type of release, a kind of just letting go, just as if you came home from a long, long, hard day of work, so exhausted that all you wanted to do is get into your favorite chair and just, you know, mold into the chair, just relax or, you know, fill up the tub with hot water or get to the gym and get in the whirlpool and, you know, you feel that warmth and you just kind of let go into it. This is the quality of the exhale when we meditate in training ourselves to let go, to loosen our grip around our disappointment or our attachment uh, to the disappointment. So in, in doing this, we need to, again, either recall or be aware of whatever the, suffer whatever the pain is that's going on with us. Uh, someone heard us at, at work. Somebody said something to us and we've been thinking about it all the way home. Whatever it is may be going on, we take to the cushion, and again, the first and most important part of meditating is posture. So we want to sit up in our seat or on the cushion. If we are sitting in a chair, both feet firmly planted on the floor, you can place your hands on your lap as such, or if you feel comfortable in the traditional mudra posture as such. Either way, what's important is that when sitting, you're not exerting yourself in any way, but your shoulders should be square with the floor, and you should be up in a kind of awake posture.
and just simply take a moment to again assess your physical sensation. Where is the pain? Is it contracting? Is it expanding? Is it in your belly? Is it in your shoulders? Wherever the stress may be, the grief, the resentment, the anger. Just feel it and noticing its location. After a few moments of kind of assessing, you start by bringing your attention or your awareness to taking a deep breath. So take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale slowly and just allow yourself to release and breathe naturally. Identify where the stress is. Sit up and take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale, release, and relax. Breathe naturally. Take a deep breath and hold it. Exhale, please, relax. Okay, so if you can bring your attention up here. So in the course of my day, especially when my daughter is home and I'm parenting, there are those moments when you know, disappointment shows up. Something is, you know, injecting itself into that relationship and into the space of that relationship. And again, our <coughs> mechanical or conditioned reaction is to take that, you know, is to contract. And what happens for me is an mm -hmm. awareness of that. Uh, it's almost, you know, I tell people when I started tr training 40 years ago, uh, I was, you know, beat up kicked, knocked down, put into the hospital before I recognized the stress in my body. Now I can see it coming 10 miles away. And so in that moment when I am aware of it coming, that is when I again return to this training as refuge. And the practice for me when I'm standing up or when I'm sitting down, whatever I'm doing that moment is again to bring my attention to my breath and I, lit and I do just that. I take that deep breath And then I act. I do not act on the emotion. I do not act on the feeling. I am aware of the presence of the emotion or the feeling, negative, anxious, stressful, uh, you know, disappointed. I want you know, to do something she's not doing and so forth. I am aware of that. I can feel it in my body. I can feel 
the, um, the uh, inspiration to act on that. But just like when we meditate, we come from a coming and going day to a posture of stopping. So in that moment, I stop holding all of that in and take that breath. And in that inhalation, whether on the cushion or when using this as a mindfulness technique in the course of the day, in that inhalation, I'm drawing that experience to me. So it's kind of like I'm bringing it here and allowing it to, to be present, to be there. And with the exhale, I'm releasing my grip on wanting it to be different. And then I act. And then I say what I have to say. And then I attend to what is needed. <clears throat> this technique, again, is cultivated, nurtured, refined, and you know, to a point of precision on the cushion. So when we are sitting on the cushion, training ourselves, we are again training in three specific techniques. One, keeping our attention here. So again, when we are taking that inhalation, we are drawing our awareness to this place, right here, in our body, inhaling, and we are holding our attention here, again, in the hara, in the core, right here. And then we are preparing to release our grip on whatever that is. And the exhale is always a gentle release, not a just dumping of the breath, but more of, like I said, for me what comes up is when I go to the uh, gym and I get to the whirlpool and it's just that right hot temperature that I like it. And, you know, after that hard workout, you know, my body feels the, that and I just kind of melt into it, per se. So the breath is like that. It's just a gentle dropping of all the grip and the, you know, the, the uh, strength of that grip on what I want. And then looking at the situation with and from a place of clarity. This practice is about clarity. The result of this practice, when you do it skillfully, regularly, and effectively, is clarity. You see what's really so. Remember, the story, I want to, I'm the parent, you should, whatever that is for you, okay? is clouding what is really so. What is really so for me, with my child, and I'm sure it is with those of you who have children, know also is I love her. You see? As I often have to remind her mother on occasion, she's only six years old. You know? What does a six-year-old know to do with this? She does surprise me more than not, but she knows an awful lot. But nonetheless, uh, the appropriate response as parent, again, always coming from a place of what so. So I often say to people over the years, if you want your life to work, forget the Bhagavad Gita, forget the Bible, get yourself a dictionary. I say. And Webster says parenting, for example, is to bring forth. My job is not to manipulate this little being into my image and likeness but to bring forth who she really is, to cultivate her ground. So that, for me, is my code of appropriateness. So in every moment, this does not work. And I come back to this again. 
So this does not work apart from a code of appropriateness. What is appropriate between you and another person? What is appropriate? What is appropriate is the code and to apply that. This allows for me to be able to apply it because what is going on is the code and all the stuff going on in the body, the physical and mental sensations that wants us to say the hell with the code. You know, I want to pop up. You know, that's what I want to do, you see. But the code is as much as you want to do not. Do not do that. So, uh, attention, awareness of what is so in the body. Do not call it anything. Do not create a narrative about it. Just notice stress or pain. Just notice worryment. There's a story running in your head. <coughs> and just sit with that. Just be with it. Inhale as if you were kind of drawing it to you in an embrace. And then release it with the exhale. When you practice this daily and regularly, it informs your ability to go there in a split second. Like I said, 40 years ago, I got run over before I could do this. Today, I can see the truck coming 10 miles away. So again, be with, not run from or resist the experience. In Tibetan, uh, if you will, conceptualization of this, Pema Chodron talks about welcoming the demon into your home, not resisting opening the door. So whoever's at the door, you welcome them in. If it's a demon, you welcome them in. You become intimately familiar with the demon. You ask the demon. You don't try to repel the demon. You find out, you know, we, in Zen we call them hungry ghosts. You find out what they're hungry for and you feed them. And the more you feed the experience with your attention, again, whatever you fully experience, it disappears. Any questions? Well, oh, yes, question. Hi. Permission to speak, Professor. Permission granted. <laughs> <laughs> she was a nun, and, and so, got Yeah, and the paradox is that it's when we talk about it, and again, semantics is always the problem, we tend to talk about either being part of it or not, when the reality is we are. 
So in Zen, we say, you either go with the flow or be dragged. One or the other. It's up to you. So again, for me, I prefer mystery. I have, I haven't a clue. I haven't a clue. Uh, I often tell this story, if you uh, go in for refreshments, if you haven't seen it in the past, there's a photograph of um, a uh, reunion event with me and His Holiness the Dalai Lama that happened some 15 years ago or more. Actually, more than that. <coughs> it was in Cinnamon. And um, at that event, this woman uh, was pushing her daughter around with a broken leg. She was pregnant and, and a broken leg. And she was in line to uh, go up and be received by uh, His Holiness. And I was standing there with him. And uh, she brings the daughter up, and she, you know, she's very humble and traditional. And she says, you know, daughter, my, my daughter just got pregnant. And he said, I, I can see that. <laughs> and uh, she says, can, can you tell us what it'll be? And he looked at the daughter, and he looked at the mother, and he looked back at the daughter, and he looked back at the mother, and he said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> So that's the position I prefer to stay in. As I get older, I'm finding out it's a lot easier to just, I don't know. <laughs> when I first started this work back in Pensalkan in 1975, uh, friends of mine who I grew up with and went to school who went off on to MIT and other places would come down in the summer and work with me. And one of them, um, we used to, well, all of us used to hang out in my apartment at night after a day of doing this stuff in the work that we were doing and uh, we would, you know, hang out, have a few beers, talking. And uh, George used to look at me and he always say, do you have any clue what you're doing? <laughs> and I would say, no, I'm just making it up as I go along. <laughs> so stay with the mystery. It's a lot more fun. Any other questions? So, were you disappointed? <laughs> if you were, you've got your technique. Handle it. <laughs> In the words of a very wise man who just, you know, beat all odds through a hard operation from the time I was very little and I would uh, either threaten to run away or uh, when I finally did run away <laughs> and left home after graduation and all that. Every single time, as I was going out the door, he would say the same thing. Adios, goodbye, good luck. <laughs> so. But also I will add, it's been a privilege to be with you tonight. Thank you. Yes. Before you go, uh, you may have received or not, and you may already know, uh, in a few weeks we will be entering our annual traditional practice of Orohatsu Sashin. Uh, it is a tradition that dates back to the time of the Buddha and Zen monasteries throughout the world on the 8th of December uh, come together, monks and lay people, uh, millions this year because it just so happens that you know the calendar works out that more than not we'll be able to actually do it on the 8th. So we will be starting on December 8th through <coughs> Sunday December 13th, entering into this five-day period. Some monasteries do seven days, we'll be doing five. Five-day period of silence 
and deep meditation. You want to know the mystery? Participate in Orahatsu Sashin. Uh, it is a real powerful and yes, mysterious experience. Uh, the people here tonight who have done it in the past every year will tell you uh, it's if you know it is there's nothing like it i mean I, I have a hard time talking about it as chico just reminded me too because the only way to know how wonderful and how powerful it is is to experience it and so on december 8th we will open odahatsu sashin uh, with a ceremony here at seven o'clock on that evening i think it's a tuesday night yes. tuesday, tuesday december 8th at seven o'clock and at the evening bell, enter into a period of five days of silence. We meditate, and our seated meditation is interrupted by walking meditation. Uh, we uh, take our meals in silence together. The, the experience of doing this with others uh, at the same time, uh, if you want to know what it's like to be a monk, uh, Odahatsu gives lay people the opportunity to experience doing this with me and my fellow monks, and again, the lay monks that have been doing this. Uh, Chico just told me today is his uh, seventh anniversary. Seventh anniversary. Hmm. Seven years ago. So, feels like forever. <laughs> and so forth. So we start December 8th at 7 o'clock, and again, we will conclude our Hatsu. You can do the full uh, uh, period, and there's information on the website and a PayPal link to register whether you do the full five days <coughs> or a few days, whether you do it uh, a whole day, a half a day, you have all of those options. Whatever you choose to do, do it. It is a wonderful uh, experience and it, part of it has to do with, it is a challenging experience. Orohatsu challenges you to get beyond that preconceived notion you are not capable. and. Uh, and seeing what is on the other side of that line. So uh, join us, either again, like I said, you're welcome to do all five days with us. We live in dormitory style, so you're given a futon, encouraged to bring your own blanket or sleeping bag is better, and we sleep, eat together, and again, in silence. Is there anything I missed? I just also want to suggest you can come just in the evening if it's after work and you want to come spend two, three hours meditating with a group. It's really moving to do that, and Saturday is typically the the big day. The big day. That's the day. And if you can <laughs> if you can make time on that Saturday to come experience the session for a whole day, it's memorable, even if that's all you can do. Yes, because that's the day. We go from early dawn to early dawn. And also, make sure you're here Tuesday night if you want to come during Orahatsu at all. Yes, yes. The opening ceremonies, uh, December eighth, is the traditional commemorative date of the Buddha's enlightenment and if nothing else is convinced you from what I said so far maybe this will millions of Buddhists throughout the world will be joined at that same period uh, commemorating that uh, historical event and beginning over Hatsu Sashin and uh, will there be an orientation during that day at all and will that start any earlier or will it start at 7 do you know I don't know I'm making this up as yeah, I go along. <laughs> I don't know all I know about tonight. <laughs> if you haven't been to Session, though, you should come Tuesday definitely and ask questions. Yes. This coming, uh, not this coming Wednesday, but the first Wednesday in December, there will be an orientation. I will be talking about entering the silence 
and it, it is designed especially for those of you who uh, have never done sashim before uh, you want to try to make that night because it is designed to give you the tools you need to step into the mystery of Orohatsu. That's in Japanese. Orohatsu! <laughs> Maybe that'll help you get Orohatsu! <laughs> Which means the 8th of December. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been fun. But my daughter waits me to come in. Uh, she had Hojin dressed up as a unicorn. Did you see it? Website. Yes. <laughs> as the babysitter dressed up as a unicorn. So, who's the real master? <laughs> Please take care of yourself. Respectfully remind you, birth and death is the supreme matter. Everything is of the nature of impermanence. Gone, gone, forever gone. Opportunity is too often lost. Do not squander your life. I see a safe journey. I see a safe return. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.